Welcome to the Pro-Life Team podcast. I'm Elizabeth Wanning. I'm co-founder of Changed Movement and executive director of advocacy for them. And we're going to be talking about some of the ideas, the fundamental underlying ideas behind transgender experience and how pregnancy care centers can come alongside people who are wanting to detransition, to move away from gender identity politics to receive health and wholeness. So, Elizabeth, I'm excited to have you on the Pro-Life Team podcast. Would you introduce yourself as if you were talking to, um, let's say, some executive directors from pregnancy clinics, which is probably not a group you often talk to, but that's one of the audiences that I try and speak to in this podcast. That's that's awesome. It's a privilege to be able to do that. Um, so I am co-founder with Ken Williams. We're both pastors at Bethel Church in Redding, California. Um, we are co-founders of the organization called Changed Movement. And Changed, essentially, um, is an advocacy and ministry or an organization that um, serves people who are questioning their sexuality um, or who have questioned their sexuality and are navigating away from LGBT rather than toward it. We, we hear a lot about the Q, the queer space, the LGBTQ space, and, and everyone presumes that if you're in that Q space, then you're leaning towards identifying as LGBT. But we represent all the people who are questioning their sexuality and who might find themselves in that space but really don't want to head in that direction. Either ideologically they don't want to go in that direction or per their conscience, or they've had some past life experience that informs their sense of sexuality, like abuse um, or molestation. So, I mean, mm. most of what yeah, I do for... uh, is I advocate, advocate in the public policy realm. So Ken focuses more on pastoral ministry and pastoral care um, I'm executive director of advocacy and government affairs, and so I tend to focus in the spaces where state legislation is being debated or whether public policies on the LGBT realm is being debated. Yeah, uh, yeah. and this is, um, I would say in, in the past, the pregnancy clinics have not taken on this this lane or this this topic when it comes to trying to provide care, but I mean, I like to give you a little backstory uh, as to why I wanted to do this podcast and and really to share where I think things are going, um, at least from my perspective. Uh, so about four weeks ago, I visited every abortion clinic website that I could as part of a keyword research project that I'm still working on today. Um, and as part of visiting about 188 abortion clinic websites um, and then considering what I saw on those sites, um, I would say that about 70% seem to have transgender surgeries listed on their list of services. And this is including single county, one office abortion clinics that offer Many of them offer three services, like abortion services, the transgender surgeries, and then something that may actually be healthcare, uh, a third service. And and so all that to say is thinking about, you know, why were there so many? You know, I knew that Planned Parenthood had been offering transgender surgery services for, well, I'm not sure how long, but let's just call it a long time. Um, but I did not know that these smaller offices, these smaller abortion clinics were also doing it. And, and so many times these pregnancy clinics are strategically located next door to an abortion clinic. And if these abortion clinics are now offering transgender surgeries, you know, in order for us to provide care for, or, or alternatives, a better, healthy, al healthier alternative the people walking in to an abortion clinic, yeah, the thought is, is what would that look like for us to be able to answer that need as well? And so, you know, being able to offer it either by offering a referral to a mental health counseling or psychologist, you know, psychologist or mental health counseling service that would be 
faith-based or biblical, biblically grounded. Um, and so that's really why I reached out to your group was to ask, well, one question was, is there a national um, network where we could refer people to who need mental health counseling and psychologists? And eventually, I think the referrals will probably will start anywhere from months from now to one and a half years. And then I think some clinics, some pricing clinics will start to offer in-house counseling and psychology services for for some of those audience, you know, some of the people walking towards an abortion clinic as a way to answer that need. Um, so let's start there. Is there what what kind of network might there be to refer um, people to or well, find someone? Well, it's interesting. So I was excited to connect with you and get this introduction because um, a few years ago, so I'm, as I said, I'm in California. Now, you can't go any more affirming, really, in the United States. I know that Vermont and Massachusetts would argue, but I, I really think we would top any state in the U.S. in terms of advocacy for the LGBT community. And so a few years ago, um, we were addressing some legislation that it had been proposed. It ultimately passed. It was um, focusing on creating a, uh, a subsidy for transgender care. So it was called the, at that point, the Transgender Wellness Care Act. And it was proposing to create a fund that would support um, transgender-led organizations that provided psychological care, um, medical care, and spiritual care to the trans community. Well, I mean, our organization is comprised of many people who have detransitioned. And so as I was meeting with legislators um, about this bill, I ended up pondering and thinking, would we qualify for that subsidy? And um, when I began pitching that to uh, some of the um, progressive legislators, uh, it caused kind of a disruption in the force. <laughs> you know, like how would we deny a detransitioned individual, someone who once identified as transgender, maybe even had surgeries, um, how would we deny them a right to this care? Like who really is transgender really was behind that. And so as I began um, thinking about that, in that same season, so that was probably 2020, uh, you know, the trans topic was taking off in an amazing way and I, I was connecting with so many endocrinologists and scientists researchers medical doctors who are also in the advocacy space with me um, and trying to put together this legislation uh, that would kind of slow down the train on transitioning children and in that season, I met with a friend who had been at ADF and now is um, in your world now. And um, his pregnancy care center was meeting needs from the LGBT community who, um, who had uh, sexually transmitted diseases. So I was offering maybe some culture, cultural insight, cultural education to him and his team. And um, I began thinking... So it, in that season, there were no, and there are no currently, um, medically accepted standards of care. So no consensus on standards of care for people who want to detransition. And um, that is the same today. So while you might have heard of like organizations like WPATH um, who have so-called standards of care that are supposedly um, medical-oriented and offer best practices for physical care. Actually, mostly WPATH is an ideological organization comprised of many disciplines. And so, in, and even in the U.S., the, the U.S. Endocrine Society, um, their standard of care doesn't acknowledge current, current science on the transgender topic. And, and so I was trying to build consensus in a network of um, scientists and practitioners, medical practitioners, 
can we put together standards of care? And that's when I had this idea of, well, who would be able to provide this care? And the easiest and most obvious answer was pregnancy care centers. Because of what you're talking about, that since Planned Parenthood has entered into that space, um, the most obvious place for people to um, to find the kind of care they might need to back out of their progression towards trans uh, transition um, is a pregnancy care center. You have uh, like-minded counselors, probably. You have like-minded medical practitioners. And so the safety, because right now, one of the issues if you're trying to detransition and you want psychological care, it's actually very difficult to find um, a licensed counselor who will provide that um, for a couple of reasons. One, of course, is ideological. Um, the other is because of conversion therapy bans. So exist, most, most states with conversion therapy bans would restrict any kind of care to a minor, and then also any kind of detransition counseling care to a minor, so you can picture that. And so that also puts a chilling effect on the counseling world for adults, even though, you know, so if you're 18 and you're in that, are you a minor, are you not space, the time when really you'd be going after those transition drugs, many counselors are reticent to offer care. And so pregnancy care centers are the perfect milieu or environment to start cultivating this nationwide network of detransition care. It's a long, wow. a long. I wasn't expecting it to come to, back to, to get to you um, in that. There, the short answer yeah. is um, there are not yet um, very many national organizations that are offering counseling care, mainly because, in... um, well, because of those two reasons, ideological reasons, but then also because of the conversion therapy ban space. Wow. So I was really hoping that there was going to be a network that we w we could have just like looked up a local physician or counselor or psychologist and provided someone with a referral. And then we, yeah, eventually some clinics would then join that network. Um, so that's interesting. That's really, it's really interesting. Your response is very intriguing. It might take me a while to consider just what the ramifications of what that really yeah that's an interesting response yeah i mean so inter so another factor so another interesting factor is that most of the the storm of transgender um you want to call it medical care it's like a yeah i i don't so okay. this is most of the storm of the transgender wave of ideology that's hitting uh, right now is so new, there there really isn't much medical science supporting it. So there aren't you don't go to a university and learn how to transition someone, and you don't go to a university to learn how to detransition someone, and and in the counseling space, you certainly don't go to university to learn how to detransition someone. Not if you're a licensed, um, a licensed counselor through the APA, for example. And so we're in this place right now where just new information is being pursued, would be the best word. So in my mind, it, it sort so back in 1973 with Roe versus Wade, there was this big wave when it came to abortion becoming legal in every state, whereas it was legal in some states and illegal in some before that. And it feels like this transgender, this you know this this new wave. Um, maybe it started a decade ago. Maybe it started. Well, part of it started with. With Merrick, you know, the uh, the Supreme Court decision when it comes to uh, gay marriage, but it also seems like the Dobbs decision uh, making abortion essentially signaling that abortion was going to become less accessible and less profitable was probably the biggest spike that my gut seems to identify 
when it comes to the LGBTQIA plus um, way of increasing, because it feels like the, you know, this group of doctors who are willing to take on this, you know, the, the, the procedure of abortion are also willing to take on the procedure of LGBTQIA transitions. And I feel like they're the same moral classification. <laughs> and, and then I also think that the, you know, the series of surgeries that it takes for someone to transition seems to be, you know, and I don't know the details, but it looks like it, ha it would have several more dollar signs than an abortion because of the lifetime of care and because of the, the, the having seven surgeries compared to having one procedure uh, and then having the lifetime of care seems to also just indicate um, greater opportunity to, you know, receive insurance coverage and having just a large amount of money pour in from each client. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you could look even beyond that, even further back to see that um, demand for abortion has been on the decline. And, and so um, I think that two things have kind of happened at once and whether they were, whether it was an intentional conspiracy or not, um, who could know? Maybe it's the spirits of darkness, but um, so as, as Roe v. Wade, as I would say the social conservative push against abortion has been successful in educating the younger generation about the impacts of, of abortion, but generally even um, for women, the impacts of um, contraception and, and hormone therapies in that whole realm. Um, Planned Parenthood has strategically seen uh, the, the upcoming, the forefront of the kinds of medicines that are going to be required in this space. Um, it's interesting, I think, you know, I mean, ideologically, we could probably have an interesting conversation about what is happening about the what is happening with the identity of women, um, just generally. And I, I think that that would be a very interesting and provocative conversation to have when Planned Parenthood is looking at trying to um, Planned Parenthood, which so a little background on me. Um, I, I came out as lesbian in my early 20s and lived in the gay community for several years. Um, I went to seminary openly gay, so I was part of the gay affirming church movement. And um, when I finished my master's degree in theology and moved into parish ministry, I, I had um, an unexplainable experience with Jesus that caused me to begin questioning what I believe to be true about God. And um, that journey, that kind of existential crisis that I had at that point, led me to do an entire deconstruction, if you will, of my faith at that point. And um, the outcome of that, it was a few years journey really, the outcome of that was I questioned my sexuality. I, I questioned whether I had been born a lesbian, and um, I ended up repenting of that identity and leaving that subculture and then moving towards um, embracing femininity and wholeness. And today, years later, um, I'm, I don't experience same-sex attraction, and I'm far away from that world. But when I was in the culture, I was a, a very staunch feminist. And so Planned Parenthood and their, their ministry, if you will, to, to women in America was um, a, a, major, a major pillar. And um, the fact that they have moved from really supporting women and women's rights to supporting men as women and their biological rights and just the confusion over what is a woman um, is very interesting. Just that's an, another conversation, but very interesting. Um, and so, yes, we could make the argument, where is the money? And I think that there's a lot, a lot, a lot more money than we can even begin to imagine in transgender care. Um, it, because unlike any other, any other procedure, it creates a patient for life. 
And, you know, you, you might, we're not talking typically about just a few surgeries. It's usually quite a few surgeries. And then beyond that, it is um, medical care for the body to maintain that transition for the rest of that individual's life. And so the financial gain, the financial profit that's possible is much, much greater than um, a single procedure like an abortion. Um, you know, and we, we could also bring into the conversation if we wanted to transhumanism and where we're going with that. Um, but the fact that um, right now, I, I would say in the um, pregnancy care center space, the biggest issue is in the medicines that the hormones that are being offered. It's not likely that a care center or a, a you know an abortion care center could provide surgeries, but they certainly would be able to maintain hormone therapies and follow-up procedures for transition. Well, first of all, I say thank you for sharing your story, and yeah, that's just. Thank you for being open and continuing to be open on uh, and be authentically sharing a hard story. Um, and and I feel like there, yeah, that's something I wish I would knew more about was the 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 hormone blocks and the hormone ads, and when it comes to the long term effects that that has. What one thing that is clear is that it looks to me like the enemy is like this this lion looking to to devour the the least powerful or the most vulnerable person in the pack. The, you know, the one that's by themselves and least likely to fight back. And, and that's been the unborn for a long time. It's also children. And so I think that I feel like the LGBTQIA plus group has targeted um born children um, who are, yeah, with partially developed brains who are not 25 yet. They are probably closer to seven years old. It seems like that, I'm not quite sure what the age range is, but it just seems like very young all the way up through um, pre-puberty and through puberty, maybe post-puberty, that kind of range in age. Um, it also seems like um, it's almost like there's a merging of these groups. The, you know, the, the LGBTQ plus IA group and the, um, the abortion advocate or, you know, those who would promote abortion group or accessibility to abortion, uh, and possibly others, but it feels like there's almost like this merging of groups or overlap of groups that may not have been seen or noticed years before, but I feel like right now we're experiencing this merging of mm -hmm. groups. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the most alarming things that we're watching happening, um, honestly. So organizations like Human Rights Campaign, so uh, for, for a couple of decades at least, if not longer, Human Rights Campaign has been an advocate for the LGBT space. And um, what we've been watching in the last five years at least is um, they're co-opting uh, racial racial groups, ethnic groups, and then also um, abortion advocacy. So if you go to um, Human Rights Campaign's website, they will say that they are protecting women's rights, that they are advocating for women's rights, particularly in the abortion space. Um, and so... Uh, you know, honestly, if you think about the the impacts of, I, I like to say that the sexual revolution is an offshoot of the tech revolution that we're experiencing right now. And, you know, the tech revolution, just like other industrial, like the industrial revolution before it caused very great or is causing very great social upheaval. So if you go back to the industrial revolution, when we were transitioning from agrarian society into more of a metropolitan-focused state. Um, families were, were upended. Men, you know, worked off out of the home. Women began working out of the home. Like, the Industrial Revolution caused a very great change in our culture. 
But then um, the same thing is happen happening with the tech revolution. And like abortion, for example, wouldn't be possible without the tech revolution. Um, the advancements in medical care and science um, and prescription drugs are all possible as a result of technology. Um, well, then, you know, with contraception being available, then the sexual revolution really became possible. And you were able, we were able to basically subvert the impacts of our sexual desires through medicine um, or through medical pr procedures um, so that we kind of disconnected from, I, I would say even disconnect, began disconnecting from our bodies as a result. I think it's interesting that one of the outcomes or the fruits of the sexual revolution is actually this very great disconnect that we're experiencing, dissociation we're experiencing in our culture right now, where people don't even know, are they man, are they man or woman? Are, you know, how, who should they mate with or um, other, other concerns like that. So this, this dissociation is um, very, it, you know, it's breaking down our culture in many ways. Um, so with that, um, this conversation over uh, trans care, et cetera, um, needs to be needs to be part of a of a restoration project, in my opinion. My opinion, just on um, a regular, a, in my opinion, a Christian anthropology, just restoring personhood in America, in a sense. Um, do you have any thoughts about? Can you speak more about restoring? Yeah, so it's interesting. So when you say personhood, I think your perspective was in regards to a man versus woman. Can you talk? Tell me more about your person, the backstory with that word personhood, because it, it has a lot of weight in the pro-life and abortion side of things. But I'm curious before going there, I would I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you are connecting it to the LGBTQ work and the man versus woman. Uh, confusion. Well, you know, um, for for a long time, uh, pro-life advocates have been saying an embryo is a person, right? An unborn child is a person. Um, and one of the disconnects that we have right now is how much of our bodies are part of our personhood. And and so, I mean, we, we by virtue of um, cultural change right now, uh, this we've kind of virtualized ourselves in a sense. And, and so we don't see our bodies as part of ourselves. We tend to think that our, our mind, will, and emotions are the primary aspect of our identity, which is the kind of underlying foundation for transgenderism. Um, like, I can will to be irregardless of what my body says, I can will to be something else. And um, this, this ideology is really completely different than the LGB ideology. It's in complete opposition to the LGB ideology. LGB ideology says I'm a victim of my body. Trans ideology says I am disconnected. I, am, I can vanquish and overcome my body. My body is just... Um, an extension of my inner self. And, and so personhood, in my opinion, involves this integration where we recognize that our bodies are an integral part of our whole being. And, and this aligns with a biblical anthropology that God breathed into our bodies and we became a living soul. Um, uh, the incarnation speaks to our whole personhood as a requirement um, or our whole bodies as a requirement for person personhood before Jesus. Like, if if we only had a soul and that was the most important thing, Jesus wouldn't have come in a body. He wouldn't have had to die on the cross. And so we are just this whole integrated being and a, mir a miracle in that. And our bodies down to the cellular level tell us a lot about who we are as men and women and who our heritage is. We... we get to speak genetically of generations before us, our whole character, our whole personality is informed by our bodies before it's informed by culture. 
And so we we're in this time where embracing personhood, in my opinion, is about our whole being, the integration of our body, soul, and spirit. That seems to um, resonate with messages that I've heard at my church when it comes to the the importance of the body being being increased or elevated back to where it should be. And, and yeah, how we're, we're not just made up of mind and spirit, but yet, yeah, the body is integral um, when it comes to it's part of who we are and who God created. And yeah, God created us as whole creatures reflecting him. And and so it's it's important to include the body and not to discard it as something that's, um, yeah, not valuable mm-hmm. or, you know, less, less valuable, valuable or something um, that we... Uh, we should be able to um, destroy or create apart from the will of God. So I guess one of the things I like to do with this podcast, there's a couple of different pillars. One is I like to share things that are helpful to Praise Clinic directors. I think we've, I think we have, um, we probably are simply echoing something that they've already been considering because I feel like we've been, this is a message, but maybe this is probably more direct than some of the, the echoes that have been going on on this need of, you know, talking about providing mental health counseling or psychological counseling for, well, for patients that are essentially going to an abortion clinic, which, or women's clinic or whatever the case, whatever the name might be. Um, Another pillar is to share something new, and I think we've definitely achieved that by sharing, by talking talking about a new topic, and again echoing things that they've probably been seeing and experiencing, um, which which verify that this is a good thing to talk about. And then the one um, one of the one of the pillars is highlighting God's fingerprints on a different topic. So I'd like to go there. And even though I think we probably we probably touched on that, but can you can you share a story, whether it's your own story or or a, a different story, where you have seen, you know, you have seen God's fingerprints work in this space, and 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 um, yeah, it just simply as a way of um, highlighting God's fingerprints in His work. Um, yeah, let me let me share a story of um, a good friend of mine. Kathy Grace Duncan. So Kathy Grace is our director of gender advocacy, and she travels with me quite a lot, um, just addressing public policy matters, sharing her testimony so that people have a greater understanding of what's involved with trans, with the trans experience. Um, so at, Kathy Grace is uh, a little bit older than me. She's around 50, I believe. And she, um, so when she was born, her, her family, um, her parents had a disconnect and her father was abusive towards her mother. And growing up, she watched them fighting and her father's abuse. And she made a subconscious, and I say subconscious because she didn't really recognize it until she was an adult. So she made a subconscious vow in that season as a child. Um, that uh, she would be a protector of women. And and that became, um, I'll be a better man than my father. And, and so, you know, as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, she was um, acting out as a boy, um, wanting to be a boy, playing like she was a boy. And then in school, she was able to orchestrate kind of a double personality where she had friend groups that knew her as a boy and friend groups who knew her as a girl. And this was kind of a a hidden life of hers. Well, then when she graduated from high school, she left home and she came out as trans and began transitioning. And um, she fully surgically transitioned and um, began living as a man. And um, so if you... If you looked at Trent, at Kathy Grace when she was about 20, you would have seen her mustache, 
Um, she was beginning uh, male pattern baldness. Like you wouldn't have by just looking at her known that she was biologically a woman. And so she was dating women and um, at one point went to a church and, with her girlfriend and there was an altar call at the church and um, she went forward to be saved and um, she expected like, okay, suddenly everything's going to change. I'm going to, you know, lightning from heaven, something dramatic is going to happen. And that didn't happen. And she, she went forward a couple of times actually, and ended up speaking to the pastor and then confessing that, um, she believed she was a man trapped in a woman's body. And that, and when that pastor heard, um, he asked her to leave and stop attending church there. And so several years later then, um, another opportunity to start attending church happened. She went, she had been dating another woman, went through kind of a bad breakup. And that bad breakup kind of led her to, I think I'm gonna try to go back to church. So she started attending a new church. She became really active in that church. She became a youth leader in that church and was um, working with junior high age boys. Now still, no one knew that she was biologically a woman and she was super popular because she's really fun and gregarious and um, doing great in ministry and she had a, a mentor and she started feeling from the Lord this prompting to, um, to accept the truth that she was a biological woman and she didn't know what to do, um, you know, because she had a track record of, well, I guess my life in church is over. And um, confessed that to her mentor. And her mentor said, well, let's, let's see. Let's talk to the pastor. And so she met with the pastors of the church and confessed. But this time when she confessed, she said, um, I'm a woman living as a man. So it was a different confession that she had. And, and when she declared that confession, she'll say she just felt the power of the Holy Spirit just hit her and fill the room. And the pastor <laughs> said to her, essentially, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help you, but we're going to stand with you in this season. And so... She agreed to immediately start backing out of the ministry leadership responsibilities she, she had had. Um, she, she became open about her identity. And then um, ultimately, she was connected to a ministry in Portland, Portland Fellowship, who offered to take her in while she detransitioned. De so Portland Fellowship is a ministry um, part of a network called Restored Hope Network, which some of your leaders could connect to. They have a really great network of counselors um, that you could tap into. Um, but so this ministry took her in. It's a live-in program, and she was there for a couple of years as she detransitioned. It, it took a while for her to um, detransition completely. But then on top of that, it took a while for her to learn even what it, who she was as a woman, if you can imagine, like what did it, if she, she had so fully rejected womanhood, um, reintegrating yourself or reintroducing yourself to that idea, I don't know if she maybe had ever felt like a woman or, or as a girl in her life. And so it was a novel idea for her. And so she had many women surrounding her, mentoring her. She went through a, 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 a really um, intentional discipleship process. Um, I don't think she would say she went through, through clinical counseling. She went through discipleship with the Lord. And so through prayer and through learning to hear the Lord, she detransitioned. Um, today, she, uh, she has been leading women's ministry for several years in Portland Fellowship. And, you know, she... She no longer experiences same-sex attraction, and she no longer um, experiences in any discordance with her gender. Um, so the experience, I could say, of young children having an experience where 
they cause they are caused to question their identity in their sexuality or in their gender um, is super common. I, I know of a young woman who, uh, when she was probably three-ish, three or four, um, now, once again, this is something that she has realized and unpacked as an adult. Um, she's in her late 20s now as an adult looking back on her childhood. So when she was about three or four, her dad was giving her a bath. And as she was, he was helping her get out of the bathtub, she slipped and fell and she cut the area around her vagina and it was bleeding. And, and probably her father to protect her um, was, he said, stay right here and went to get her mom so that um, she would have her mom looking instead of him. But she perceived that as, there's something wrong with me. He won't look at me. And so she felt ashamed then, from then on, that she was a girl and not a boy because it caused a disconnect. She perceived it was just a self-perceived disconnect between her and her father that lasted all the way until she was in her 20s. It wasn't um, a broken relationship with her father was, you know, because she deeply desired connection with him and her family life was not, um, it wasn't fraught with abuse like Kathy Grace's. But that, that one moment of fear and doubt was enough to set her on the trajectory of self-rejection. And with no one to know how to respond or to help her navigate, how do you get back to understanding what's underneath this sense of complete disconnect from your gender identity? Um, it really took for her, once again, this place of prayer and connection with the Lord to understand um, what happened, what was I believing, and what, what then do I do? Um, and, and so uh, we're in an interesting time when children really are being attacked, families are being attacked. And I would say the number one, um, the number one place of risk is in the relationship between parents and children. Thank you for sharing those stories. Uh, one, one thing that I'm reflecting on is when it comes to Kathy's story, uh, and it sounds like she had a really hard experience the first time that she tried to share, but at least with the second time, what, one of the, the verses that we often reflect on when it comes to, you know, women seeking healing from abortion yeah. or, well, seeking healing from really anything, um, when it comes to spiritual healing and other types of healing, I suppose as well, which would be, uh, James five sixteen, which says, oh. um, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed and the prayers of a righteous person availeth much. And, and so by sharing, sharing with someone who is trusted and who is willing to pray and a good person to ask to pray, I think is a really good recipe for finding healing and taking that step yeah. of saying it out loud to that person really, I think, um, removes a foothold or it, it, it removes the power that, that, that that sin holds over someone until that confession and is I, made or it's a very in, incredible very, way I, I feel like to, it's so yeah. important like you're saying um, my the other ministry leader here at changed Ken um, he says this line that I think is absolutely pertinent uh, you, you really can't be loved unconditionally until until people know your condition and and so you know a, a lot of the time for us who are in the LGBT community, we we sub, we keep silent. We're out of fear. We keep silent about what we're experiencing and believing, um, out of fear of rejection mainly. But what happens then is that silence um, actually seems to confirm the rejection that we're perceiving. Um, so we perceive the fact that our parents or our friends or who whomever are not addressing um, our, our deep emotional pain, we perceive that as, as rejection, even though we actually haven't confessed to having that pain. And so there's so much, the Lord's wisdom in confession is so important. Yeah, I agree. And then the other thing that you, you said when you were mentioning um, 
the the subject experience for Kathy when she, when you said that that pastor said we will stand with yeah. you. Um, so so last night um, I went to church and uh, Pastor Susan Seepin at our, my church. She talked about the book of Ephesians, and we're going through a series where we're over you know, every summer we go over one book per right. Sunday. Man, this is a series we do it for about five years. You know, it's not going straight through, right. but spreading it out. And so, so, so Susan really wanted to preach on Ephesians because in the past she actually memorized the entire book of wow. Ephesians because she likes it so much. And so, if anyone was ready to preach on Ephesians, it was Susan. And and her sermon was really incredible because she knew it at just an incredible depth. Yeah. And she's one of the the way in which she summarized Ephesians was the three parts. The first several chapters were about sitting, and then the next portion was about walking, and then the third portion was about standing. And and sitting re- represented um, preparing, or in my mind, I was thinking of resting, but I think it's preparing. And then walking is a matter of changing. Like if you're walking towards the right direction and, and it also standing is when you have to take a stand for someone and sitting, walking and standing are also can be done in an evil way. According to Psalms one, when it comes to sit, you know, don't sit with the scornful or, you know, anyways, the sitting, walking and standing in Psalms one represents how it can be done in an evil way. But Ephesians talks about how sitting, walking, and standing can be done in a righteous for God way, and it just it just struck me that you used the you know that word stand just brought in a lot of meaning when you said that he said we'll stand with you because that's that's really what we're preparing to do is to stand for people who need you know standing in that spot with the armor of God because that standing portion of Ephesians talks about equipping with the armor of God. To be able to oh, stand. So good. Yeah, that's absolutely perfect. And in this season, <laughs> we we so need um, mature spiritual leaders to take that stand. And, you know, from my vantage point, I have so many people who have been in the pro-life space. And from my vantage point, you have a well-worn um, pathway of, um, of strategies but then also maturity in the movement that can make that stand and if anybody ever needed it 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 is children who are faced with um identity politics today yeah and and it feels like yeah and it feels like the the children are you know when it comes to school systems when it comes to culture when it comes to so it just seems like yeah, and maybe we're we're in the season of sitting and walking and get yeah, you know, so that we can stand. And but probably in the end, we need to do all three. We we need we need to do what's right at the at, for the moment, and yeah. and, and yeah, and st- 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 yeah. essentially, you know, being equipped to stand for children who are vulnerable. And then those years of like between the ages of seven to nine seem like the most impactful years that will direct someone's, um, you know, where, where they go as an adult, those years are, are critical. And if the enemy is attacking those years, the enemy is going to see fruit in the later years of life. And so we really need to identify and, you know, you know, not give room to the enemy to, uh, to provide that bad More. direction during those seven to nine-year-old yeah, years. Yeah, boy. And so much sexual abuse happens in that time as well. And and any, if there's any sexual abuse and uh, or molestation, so because we are in just sex culture, um, <clears throat> children as young as seven are being introduced to sex. So once you start to sexualize children at that age, then... You set a pattern, a trajectory for them for the rest of their lives. And if if they are believing, I, I personally think it's unethical for anyone to affirm LGB or T identity in a child who hasn't gone through puberty. Um, because who can know if, you know, LGBT is sexual and prepubescent children are not geared, they're not uh, mature enough to be having those feelings. 
Um, but so that 79-year-old period is, is a highly sexually charged period right now in the United States. That's when most kids are being introduced to porn. Um, many kids are being transitioned into, um, and I don't mean from a transgender posture, but transitioned into more mature levels of sex, sex ed curriculums in their school. And so um, it is a pivotal time. But, but, I, but I would say all of the years, because m many transgender identifying people would tell you that they started doubting their or questioning their gender as early as they can remember. And I, you know, when I've talked to counselors and, and uh, psychological professionals about that, they tend to believe it's because their attachment issues, so early childhood attachment issues, um, so where a, an infant has not received the kind of attention from both parents that that infant really needed in order to develop um, in a healthy way emotionally. And so um, the, our, our, our mandate really um, is to restore family so that women can feel confident in you know, being women all the way to being mothers and cherishing that role and everything that it, it uh, requires, you know, so that they don't have the demand of just rushing away from having a child but can really nurture it early in their lives. Because so many of us, um, we have issues in our sexual identity because of those early childhood years. Um, I, I think I wanted to say because you opened with, where's the network that we can find? So I want to speak to that for a minute um, because I, I maybe brushed you off or you might have sensed that I brushed you off with that by saying there isn't one or there, isn't, there aren't many. Um, there, there are developing um, networks that are helping people detransition, but right at the moment, um, one of the dramas in that is the, the space for counselors who are willing to walk with individuals who are questioning their, their sexuality has been under attack for, for decades. You know, starting with the 70s when the um, LGBT movement, the Stonewall movement, began attacking the American Psychological Association, um, research on... Um, emotional care for people who experience same-sex feelings or gender incongruence has has really been um, twisted by LGBT activism. So, you know, there isn't much professional care offered to someone who does not want the feelings. And most of the counselors who would be willing to be in that space are Christian and, but that space, as I said, is heavily attacked because of legislation and public policy in the anti-discrimination space. And so um, you almost you have to look at for organizations that have strong Christian um, biblical sexual ethics um, for counselors. But they are certainly that network, that uh, awareness of the relationship particularly of trauma to transgender identity, trauma and other comorbidities like autism to the transgender reality is meaning that more and more and more counselors are um, engaging that space. And um, so I expect to see in the next five years a really, um, a really obvious response to detransitioning uh, meanwhile, I think it's up to Christians to find their networks of Christian counselors like the American Association of Christian Counselors who do hold spaces for people with who are wanting to align with a biblical sexual, sexual ethic um, on these topics um, to help them detransition. But it isn't just psychological care that a detransitioner needs. Um, a detransitioner is going to need a multidisciplinary approach because they've affected their bodies as well. And so you'll you'll have to be able to coordinate with local endocrinologists who would be willing to facilitate kind of the the uh, medical practices around hormone therapies, um, as well as general practitioners, just to address the overall impacts of those drugs on people. And of course, the more dramatic or more invasive their transition, the greater the measure of care is going to be needed. Um, so some, 
some procedures, uh, like a phalloplasty, for example, are going to require very specialized care. Um, so I think we're going to have to be uh, eyes wide open looking for organizations. Um, a good one to follow is um, the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. And I'll send you a few links so that you can um, include those with this podcast. Um, SEGM, GenSpect, um, but also organizations that have been around for a long time, like Living Waters or uh, Restored Hope Network, us at Changed Movement, um, ministries that are addressing this so that everyone receives all the care, all the kinds of care um, from a holistic approach that they need to be restored. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much for just sharing all these, this insight and this wisdom. Yeah. Would you would you help us um, close the podcast by praying and just with the expectation that those who are listening will be able to pray as they're commuting and listening to this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I'd love to. I appreciate that. Thank you. Father, we, we come today to you through the, through the beauty and wisdom of your Son and the sacrifice of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that in this season you are raising up um, spiritual leaders and practical re- leaders who can navigate this movement. Um, the impacts of the transgender movement on our culture are so great, but Father, we know that you have a greater plan. And so, Lord, because you're able to to make beauty out of ashes, I just thank you, Father, that you are releasing over pregnancy care directors and over the center staff vision and strategy um, and unusual pioneering ideas that will address this need and become a, a safety net, a, sa- a safety net and a place of security for people who are um, wanting to backpedal on beliefs that they've had in the past so that they can receive wonderful care, nurture, and complete restoration. In Jesus' name, amen. Our sponsors include Heritage House, Patriot Insurance, and irapture.com. The Pro-Life Team Podcast is a ministry of irapture.com. If you would like to explore making a donation or becoming a sponsor or have a recommendation for who would be a good guest on the podcast, please contact us at hello at prolife.team. Fresh, fresh. fresh.